15 weeks or so, we've been exploring and kind of discovering the rich and yet challenging truths of Paul's letter to the Roman church and its depths. The depths of its truths have spoken to our souls and hopefully by the power of the Holy Spirit it has changed us. It has kind of given us a new perspective on what Paul is trying to say in Romans. Like many of you, uh, we've probably heard multiple messages out of Romans, but our prayer is that our heart really focuses in on what God has for us today, something new that will change uh, in us and allow us to be more like Christ. And so Paul brings us a very challenging book, but yet a very doctrinal book, a very basic doctrinal book, and he sets up a framework for us to understand and where to start from in our Christianity, and that is God himself his righteousness. And so he starts in chapter one. I love it. We're going to outline it. It says in chapter one, he kind of gives this opening and he says this, this is the good news. In chapter one, verse one, he says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus called as an apostle set apart for the gospel, which he promised concerning his son who was born of the descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are called of Jesus Christ. To all who beloved of Rome, of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul opens with the good news. He says the good news is that Jesus Christ came and that he loved you and that his grace extended to all. And so he starts with this good news, and then he gives thanks to the believers in Rome, because it's important. They've been in Rome, the believers, it's a small group, but he says, you know, I'm so thankful for you. I want to encourage you, I want to pray for you. Continue in the work that you are doing, because it's not easy. They lived in a society, just like we live in a society, where it's difficult to proclaim the truth about God's gospel. Anyone can claim the gospel and say the good news, but the truth of it, it's tough. When we get down into the truth, we're going to get, we're going to get opposition if we're true about the gospel. We can fluff it up and say Jesus is great, but when we get to the, to the bone, the meat of the gospel, the gospel convicts. But that's a good thing. That's a great thing because it changes who we are to be more like Christ. And so he's thankful for what they're doing. He's thankful for their work. And then he does this. He says in verse 16, he gives us the theme of all of Romans. And so for the rest of Romans, he's really going to break down what this means. And he says this in verse 16. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for righteousness for all who believe to the Jews first and also the Greeks. It's the gospel. It's for all. And it's not about who you are, but it's about what Christ is coming to do. It's about God's righteousness through Christ. And so as he introduces this theme, as he introduces this thought that it's by God's power and not our own, he continues. And so from this theme, he spends really the rest of chapter 1 all the way into chapter 3 explaining to us the unrighteousness of man. We have to start there, right? We have to understand that we cannot obtain it on our own, but it's only through God and his righteousness. And so Paul starts with the Gentiles, and he says, look at the life you're living. 
Look at the pagan life that you live in. Look at everything that you're involved in, the lust of the world, the love of money, the greed, the selfishness, you as Gentiles. And then he breaks down the Jews and he says, look, you're in the same boat. Yours looks a little different, but you're in the same boat. You're trying to uphold the law. You're trying to be righteous by what you can do, what you can achieve. And he says, you can't do it. You cannot achieve it. And so not only are the Jew, the Gentiles unrighteous, the Jews are unrighteous. And then Paul just kind of sums it all up and he says, hey, look, everyone from all time is unrighteous. We're all unrighteous. None of us can achieve it. It doesn't matter your cultural background. It doesn't matter what you've done in your life and what you think you've done is good. You cannot achieve righteousness. You cannot achieve standing right before God on your own. And so he breaks this down over the next uh, couple of chapters. And then we move into this. This is his next point. Once he has defined that we are unrighteous, all are unrighteous, His next point is this, that saving righteousness, the righteousness that saves us, is through God. And he brought us his son, his sinless savior. And so we're going to walk through this for the next couple of chapters and kind of break down this section. There's three real main parts when we look at it, and hopefully these three parts will really illuminate God's saving righteousness to us, that we can really see what Paul is trying to say about God's righteousness. And that is so much better than ours. And so he says this, that the three sections are this, God's righteousness is in the death of Jesus. This is the first section we'll look at. Then we'll say the righteousness by faith for the Jews and the Gentiles. And then last is Abraham as the father of the Jews and Gentiles. And we'll look at that as we move through these next couple chapters. But before that, I want to give you three questions. Before we dive into today's text, I want to give you three questions that not only help me, but hopefully will help you as you look at Scripture, as you look at Scripture before home groups, as you look at Scripture before uh, your time, your own devotion to the Lord, as you look to Scripture before you come here on Sunday mornings. Hopefully you're doing that. Hopefully you're preparing your heart to be before God and to receive His message through the power of His Holy Spirit, that we're looking at Scripture, that you just don't show up on Sunday and think, I'm just going to be fed on Sundays, and that's it, hopefully throughout the weeks. And so I want to give you three questions, and they're really simple. And I think it's going to help us move through the letter of Paul. And so each time you open up Romans, I want you to, say, I want you to ask this, what has Paul said? Just like we did, well, work back in Scripture and say, what has Paul said? What is he leading me up to? And so the next question is not what, what he has said, and now what is he saying to me now? So what has Paul said? Don't just take Scripture and read it and then try to understand a one scripture in chapter four really look at chapter one all the way up to chapter four and build into what paul is trying to say because there can be confusion but paul if we're following the scripture along if we're if we're looking back then it's going to be perfect harmony when we see the message it's going to be beautiful and so look back and ask yourself what has paul said what is paul saying now and then here's the question how does that apply to me how does it apply to me in my walk in my context What does it look like? I didn't live in Rome when all this was going on. But guess what? All of Scripture applies to all of us. And it's beautiful. And so think of those three questions. Like I said, entering into your home groups here on Sunday mornings, personal devotion times. Think through what it looks like. And so now we're in chapter 3. And so here's the natural question that anyone would ask if, if you're reading through this. How can I be right before God? Right? That's the question. 
Because so far, it's like, I can't do anything right. And that's true. You can't. (laughs) And that's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of God's righteousness. And so man cannot achieve it on its own. And so we do question, how can I stand right before God? How can I stand right before the righteous judge? And Paul answers that for us. And it's so clear. Look at verse 21, and we'll move through this. It says this, But now, apart from the law of righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sin previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so we start in the very beginning And it may sound repetitive, but hold with the thought. Hold with the thought here, what Paul is trying to say. He's saying that the righteousness is apart from legalism or apart from the law. Listen to verse 20. It says, but now apart from the law of righteousness of God has been manifested. But now apart from the law of righteousness of God has been manifested. And so this phrase here, but now, it's a transition. It's a transition here. And what he's trying to do, Paul is trying to shift our focus from the old era where sin dominated us into this new era of salvation. All right, so hold this thought here. It says that, and, and this is how Paul really, he defines it as that, that man has no part at all in obtaining his salvation, right? Because we know the history of the Jews, we know the history of ourselves, that we try to be self-righteous, that we try to put things in place that honor God, and all we need to do is faithful to God. And so we'll get into that. But what Paul has done here, he has set the stage, he has sketched the framework for our spiritual state so that we belong into this new era of salvation, that we've removed ourselves from this old era of of where sin dominated who we are as, as a people. And so now, he says this, but now, God, but now apart from the law of righteousness of God has been manifested. Paul wants to be clear here that the law has failed to rescue us. It has failed to rescue the Jews and it has failed to rescue us. And so apart from the law, we cannot obtain salvation. We cannot. It's failed. So it doesn't matter if you've been going to church since you were in the womb, if your dad's a pastor, if you taught Sunday school for 40 years, none of that matters. None of it matters. Because the law of man will lead us straight to hell. And that's the hard truth. Our law, what we think is a straight path, what leads us to God, will fail us. So don't be caught in that trap. Don't allow your thoughts to be consumed that you're doing well because you've checked off your list. Submit to God. Surrender to Him and His will. So don't be victim to that. But here's the good news. It says this, that God's righteousness has been manifested to us in the person of God. Of Jesus Christ. Amen? The righteousness is now obtained without any contribution to our works. Without any contribution. Only through the person of Jesus Christ. And he's been manifested to us. And that reality, 
is that this, that there is a new justification, but it's always been by faith. Catch that, right? It's always been by faith. When we talk about the old era of sin and this new era, it's not saying that faith hasn't changed. We're not saying that. We're saying that the old era is that sin dominated because we fell into this legalism. As a people, we tried to obtain salvation. And the new era is saying that Christ obtained salvation. And now you have salvation. So that's what we're looking at. Don't get confused by that. God, our faith in Christ, our faith in what God is doing is what justifies us. And we'll see that as we continue. And so in the Old Testament, we've seen that. We've seen it in the life of Abraham. We've seen it in Noah. We've seen it throughout the Old Testament. Look what it says. You don't have to turn there, but let me read what it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 and 2. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then verse 2, it says, For by it the men of old gain approval. It's by faith. It's by faith that has not changed. And so... Church, this justification is not, it's not based on this feel-good moment in our life. It's not based on your works. It's not based on some cool event with a big van. It's not based on that. It's not based on your legacy at the local church. Your family's been there 100 years. It's not based on that at all. What it is based on and solely and completely based on is your faith that you receive by the power of the Holy Spirit in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what it's solely based on. And so Paul hits that right ahead. And then we move on into the end of verse 21. It says, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And so the first part is this, that we cannot obtain righteousness through our legalism. We can't. And so the second part is he says it's built on the revelation, the revelation of the word. It says it was being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And this was commonly used in scripture to talk about all of God's word, not just the law. We can't shrink it down to the Ten Commandments or the law or the books of law. You talk about anything in the word of God, we must hold close to our hearts. And it says so, being a witness by the law and prophets, it's all of the scripture that they had at that present time. And so in other words, Paul's not speaking about a new kind of righteousness, but about a divine righteousness that has been spoken throughout the Jewish scripture. And so Jews, they had great reverence for the Scripture, but where did they fail to realize? What did they fail to realize is that it was divine. And so what they did is the Scriptures, it had no power to them. It had no power to save. I know what you're thinking. Scripture has power to save. It does. But listen to me real quick. Verse 39, John chapter 5, verse 39. Listen to what John says. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, you have searched Scripture because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that bear witness of me. And so what Jesus is saying, that the law and the prophets did not show men how to achieve their own righteousness, but it pointed to the coming Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God, who, who him himself would provide the righteousness of God. That's what it's pointing to. And they searched so that they could learn how to stand right before God, so that they could achieve it. And we do that. We're guilty of that. We're guilty of that. And we need not fall into that. We're guilty because we've taken the scriptures and we've tried to turn it into ways that fit us, that feel good to us. We make up rules that are not even in the Bible. 
so that we can stand abroad in front of the community and look righteous. But we don't. All we've done is put on a masquerade. And we're not who we say we are. We don't want to look like what we think the community should think we should look like. We want to look like the Word of God says we should look like. And we want to stand righteous in His Word. We want to stand firm in His Word. And so we must strive. We must strive to pursue God's Word. And when we pursue God's Word, it will break us down. It will humble us. And that's what it was intended for. It was intended to humble those so that they would see the Messiah. It would remove them of what they thought they could achieve and see what Christ came to achieve. And so once our pride is broken down, we can respond in faith, in a righteous faith. Look what he says, continuing in verse 22. It says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Here is Paul's point about saving righteousness. It's not that we receive it apart from legalism. I mean, it is that we receive it. It's not only that we receive it apart from legalism, and that, that, that it's not only built on God's word, but that it's acquired through faith. It's acquired through faith. For us to stand righteous is because we have faith in what God has come and did through his son, Jesus Christ. That is how we acquire it. It has always been the means of righteousness. Romans 4, 5 says this. It says, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. His faith is credited as righteousness. Then he continues down in verse 13. It says, for the promise to Abraham or to the descendants that he would be heirs of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. It's through faith. Now, I don't want to be so foolish here and just say, because we say we believe in Jesus Christ, we're all saved, right? We don't want to be foolish. We know that James speaks against that, that he says even the devil himself believes, right? So he speaks against that. There's a save. There's a difference between acknowledging some truths about the Scripture and really submitting our all to it. There's a saving faith that is involved. It's not just the faith to say Jesus walked this earth. We can prove that through history. But have we surrendered our life? Have we submitted our life to Christ? That is saving faith. That is a faith that will save us. John 8 says this. Because unfortunately, people have done that, right? We know people that do that. Look what John says. In John 8, 31, it says, So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed, If you continue in my word, then you are a true disciple of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. You have been set free from the bondage of sin. I don't know if you recall in verse 9, but it says that we are put under sin, that, there, that we've been weighted down by sin, that we're in bondage to that. But when we have a saving faith, it releases us from that bondage. When we act in saving faith, it releases and it, it removes that weight so that we can live freely in the will of God. And we don't have the pressures of trying to obtain something on our own because we can't. We can't. You may feel like you can for a while, but you cannot sustain it. Only Christ and his work at the cross. And so our saving faith in Jesus Christ is much more than just simple affirmation in who Christ is. But it involves a total submission that we give our all. It involves the exercise of will that we're obedient to God's will. It involves emotion. 
right? It involves emotion. I know we say, look, don't get caught up in the emotions, but it involves the emotion of your soul. Because I don't know about you, but when your life was transformed, when my life was transformed, there was emotions. I love this. Listen to what John MacArthur says. He says, a person cannot be saved by good feelings about Christ. Many people throughout the ages in our own days have, submi- have substituted good feelings about Christ for saving faith in him. And this is what he says. He says, but on the other hand, a person whose life is transformed by Christ will be affected in his emotions in the deepest possible way. You have a new life. You see from a new perspective. If that doesn't affect your emotions, I don't know what will. And so in salvation, in saving faith, there is something in our souls, in our depths, that has changed. And that's a good thing. And we no longer chase after what the world wants, but we chase after what Christ wants and longs for us because he wants what's best for you and I so that we can bring glory to the Father. Not so we can drive cool cars and have the American dream. It's so that we can lift up his name, exalt him before all the earth. And so it involves also the intellect, that we must know the truth and we must love the truth. That when we read God's word, we look at it as truth and we obey it. And it also involves the embodiment of God's righteousness. We must understand that he clothed us in right, that he imputed his righteousness on us. That's how we stand right before God. That's how we stand right before God. And so verse 22, continuing in that, it says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Righteousness is provided for all. So we have arrived at this, at the good news, right? We've arrived. It's for all. It's not a select group. And so his righteousness is for all. And Paul tells us that his righteousness is available for all. And he also tells us why. Pick him up in verse 22. It says, for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. There is no more Greek or Jew. It has to do with this absence of any basic, um, any ba- basic differences that we may have as people. That when we stand before the judgment of God, it's a, it's a level playing field. He doesn't look at you because you came from Jewish tradition. He doesn't look for you because your dad was a pastor or whatever. He looks at you and says, have you given your life to Christ? Have you submitted your life to Christ? And if you have, then you are clothed in his righteousness. There is no other evaluation. And so there is no distinction. All are the same. It doesn't matter. The Jews, they had the law and circumcision. America's we claim to have this great religious heritage and, and good people, they, they lean on their charity and their works and what they've done, but none of that matters. None of that matters when we stand before God, a righteous, a holy God. And so murder, prostitute, thief, homosexual, rapist, religious hypocrite, false teacher, pagan, it doesn't matter. None of that matters. None of it matters. We will only be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. For there is no distinction. And why is there no distinction? Look at verse 23. For all have fallen short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's why. The word all in Greek means all. 
There's no special translation. There's nothing you have to look up and try to define. It says that we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I don't know about you, church. That's good news, right? I don't have to look to the left or right to find out what I need to do to obtain salvation. It's in Christ alone. We've all fallen. We're all guilty. And so now, as I lay my myself before Christ and at his feet and I chase after him he makes me righteous and so I need to look to him I need to continue to look to Christ and so with all the effort and the ability known to man we cannot we cannot and will not be able to obtain this glory apart from Christ we cannot and in verse 24 his righteousness is given freely to us by way of grace. Look at verse 24. It says, being justified as a gift by his grace. Being justified, a legal transition here, is the change in the jurisdictional standing that you stood before God as a sinner and then he removed that. When he justified you, he removed that. He took away the account of guilt that you had. All the guilt that you had, he removes that. And he stood in your place. And he took it. And because he took it perfectly, you can stand right before God. You are being justified because of what Christ has done. And he declares you fully righteous. And so even in our salvation, we can't fall back to legalism. We are fully righteous. We need to fall more into God's word to obey him and love him and seek after him. And not into our foolish ways that somehow we can, can even now that we are justified, keep it. <laughs> you can't keep it. You didn't obtain it. You can't keep it. He gave it to you. And he gave it to you freely. Look what it says. He says he gave it to you as a gift. This word gift, it's, it's something freely given. It's unearned. It's unmerited. I don't know about you. I've never received a gift I had to pay for. I received gifts I had to take back to the mall, so I've got like, you know, a chore. But, but I've never been given a gift that I had to give someone money, right? It's free. It's unearned. It's unmerited. And that's what Christ did for us, what God did for us through his son. And so this gift, he says, you can't obtain it. Galatians 2.20, I love this verse. It's 2.20 through 2.21. We can't forget 2.21. Sometimes we just, we jump to, because we can memorize 220, but it says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life which now I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave me and gave himself up for me. And then here's verse 26. It says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Christ did not die needlessly. He died because we cannot attain it. He died because the righteousness of God is only found in Jesus Christ. He was the only one that could satisfy the wrath of God because he lived a perfect life. He lived a perfect life in submission to the Father so that we could benefit from it. Don't get confused in your theology. He didn't die necessarily for you. He died so that the glory of God would be brought through you so that we could be the people of God he died in obedience to the Father because God needed the ultimate glory, not us. And so when we think through our theology, Christ died so that we could be the glory of God. Amen? And that's a good thing. 
And so he loves us so much that he gave it to us by what? Means of what? Grace. The end of verse 24 is being justified as a gift by his grace. Grace is unmerited favor. Dr. Moo puts it this way. I love Dr. Moo. He says this. He says, grace is one of Paul's most significant theological terms. He uses it typically not to describe a quality of God, but the way in which God has acted in Christ. Unconstrained by anything beyond his own will, God's justifying verdict is totally unmerited. It's totally unmerited. Meaning the gift of grace cost God. It cost God the suffering of his perfect son. We understand that? No, we don't. But we believe it. We can't understand the amount of suffering that Christ took on the cross on our behalf when all the sin of the world came down on him on Calvary. We cannot understand that, but we trust in it. And we know that it's true. But in that, God suffered in the death of his son on the cross so that for believers, there's nothing left to pay. There's nothing left to pay. And then in verse 24 at the end, it says this, through redemption in which is in Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus. Righteousness is accomplished by redemption. The word redemption, it carries this idea of of delivering someone, uh, and it means to pay their debt or to pay a price for it. And that's what Christ did. He came and he accomplished that through the cross, through redemption of the cross. And because of our sinfulness and our inability to achieve it, he achieved it. And he achieved it by way of the cross. And then we continue in verse 25, and it says this, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. So the atoning sacrifice was not paid in secret, but it was publicly displayed for all the world to see. It was a public display. And he did it on the hill called Calvary. And so in verse 25 it says, Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. That word just means to appease God or to satisfy the wrath of God. And it says, In his Son, or in the blood of his Son, through faith. I love what Peter says this. This is redemption. Listen to what 1 Peter 1 says in verse 18. It says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold for your futile ways of life, inherit it from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as the lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. That's what you were redeemed through. And it will not perish. It will not fade away. We have been redeemed by the atoning sacrifice. And that's by means, righteousness comes through that means. And in verse 25, we celebrate. It's the cross reveals God's righteousness. Look at verse 25. It says, this was to demonstrate, this was the cross to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in forbearance, because God was patient, because he loved us, in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The cross. The cross. I love it. I don't, we didn't plan this, but there was a song that Ian sang, and it's in this scripture, Psalms 85. I love what it says. It gives us this beautiful picture of the cross. 
And then the psalmist says this, he writes this in, in Psalms 85, verse 10. He says, loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. What a beautiful psalm. What a beautiful picture of the cross and what Christ did to reveal God's righteousness for us. What a beautiful picture. And it reminds me of this lyric in um, David Crowder's song called My Victory. And he says this, he says, Oh, your love bled for me. Oh, your love, your blood in crimson steam. Oh, your death is hell's defeat. And then here's the end, it says, The cross meant to kill is my victory. Wow. The cross meant to kill. When the Rome, when they stood there, when the Jews stood there and they thought they're ending this hypocrisy, they're ending the blasphemy of God by killing Christ. When they thought that their world would, they would regain power and authority here on earth, they were wrong. It was our victory. It was the believer's victory that we could stand holy and righteous before a holy and righteous God. And so that which was meant to kill brought supreme glory and revealed his perfect righteousness to the world. Wow. Something so tragic brought God supreme glory. One theologian says it this way. He says, The most unfathomable of all spiritual mysteries is that the holy and just God providing redemption for sinful man and in this gracious act not violating any attributes of his, na- of his nature, but bringing supreme glory to himself. We have victory in the cross, and we are justified by that act through the blood of Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb.